0: of february 25th 2024 this is showbiz sandbox episode 649 the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world in los angeles i'm jay Reich,
1: and on mars i'm michael gilts why am i on mars Sperling? because life on mars is wonderful and that's life what we on found mars. out that, yes you were right Score what? one for Sperling. Score one for Sperling. Uh, after the show last week, uh, Sal Nunziato, and we, we looked it up, uh, Peter Frampton did, in fact, play lead guitar and sitar, at least on one track, on David Bowie's album, Never Let Me Down. I think most of the guitar is by Bowie himself, but Frampton did play on that album. He also joined Bowie on the Glass Spiders tour So full credit to you for thinking, didn't he play on one of Bowie's albums? Kind of. And And it's Sal's least favorite album. So that may be why he didn't remember it so well.
0: Well, and the funny thing is, uh, you know, I remember that album and because I remember the documentary about that album that was on MTV and it was David Bowie and Peter Frampton running around. I think it was Germany. It was somewhere in Europe and they were recording the album, which is what made me think oh, he must have played on the album. And that led me to extrapolate. He
1: must have played on a lot of people's albums. (laughs) He must be like a good studio. (laughs) He (laughs) is indeed. Now, what happens when we get to episode 666? Do we just skip that one or do we make it an all devil episode? What happens?
0: Is that like the 13th floor?
1: Like on an elevator where it goes, you know, 10, 11, 12, 14? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I think so. Well, you know, we'll have to find out what happens when we get to episode 666. Ooh, but tell us what's going to happen this week on the show. Well, this week on showbiz sandbox, we're overwhelmed with awards. And by that, I mean
0: not receiving any awards. Okay. Because somehow we haven't won an award yet, even though we keep not submitting ourselves for awards consideration and running a a campaign. Oh, we don't run a campaign. But anyway, we're just attending award shows can be exhausting but we do it so you don't have to you know that's that's why we're we're here and we'll have the latest on the pga the producers guild the wga the writers guild the cesars over in france the visual effects folks and, of course, SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. Apparently, they're not on strike when it comes time to award themselves. It's all leading up to the Oscars, of course. And if you want to win your Oscar pool, you better watch the shorts because everyone is going to pick Oppenheimer for picture and director. So you can't win on like the fluke that like somehow I- 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 Killian Murphy doesn't win. He's going to win. We've got a report, by the way, on the status of women starring in top films and the news isn't good we've also got news on vice firing people and more union activity on inside baseball our good friend jeff boucher is swooping in to save the day is it a bird is it a plane no it's jeff boucher or at least he's going to talk to us you know about superhero fatigue and whether it's a real thing or or just something to talk about before the next big superhero movie arrives and we can Talk about its comeback. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in
1: on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office from around the world. We have links to ComScore in our show notes. We pull info from everywhere we can. Uh, Last week. It was the Chinese New Year. It was a huge week for movie going. They made over a billion dollars at the Chinese box office in like a 10-day period or a seven-day period. This week, they've made about $250 million. So things are slowing down, but still pulling in good money. So the top four films are all in China. Article 20 from director Zhang Yimou made about $83 million. Pegasus 2, a race car movie, that made $75 million. YOLO, or You Only Live Once, $61 million, and Hollywood should be looking at remake rights to that one, and then Boonie Bear's Time Twist, the 10th in an animated film series, the highest grossing one in the series yet, made another $50 million this week. Add that up in the other movies and you get about $250 million. Boonie Bears is the highest grossing in the franchise. Pegasus 2 made more than Pegasus 1. YOLO is a standalone film, but obviously hugely profitable. It's at $460 million already. And Zhang Yimou's film is having the best legs. It started a little lower, but here it is at $290 million and still going strong. But there's news around the world, not just in China. Bob Marley, One Love, he wants to unite the world with music. $46 $46 million this week. It's at $120 million worldwide. Then there's a Japanese animated film that opened in North America and a lot of other countries Demon Slayer Kimitsu no Yaiba to the ha- Hashira Train. These movies have crazy long weird titles, but it made $40 million this week around the world. It had made about $2 million, I think, in early previews or something uh, the week before. Madam Webb is our first uh, down note in the Fox office news. Madam Webb made $25 million this week. It's at $77 million worldwide. In Korea, a local film has turned the lights back on again. Exuma, it's an occult thriller. It opened to a strong $17 million that already makes it like the second highest grossing Korean film of the year. So it's clearly going to be doing much better than that. Migration Chugs Along, that made another $14 million for the Universal Animated Films about Birds in Flight. And Wonka, Wonka is at $617 million worldwide, just as Timothy Chalamet's Dune Part 2 looms large. It played last night on about 400 screens in IMAX. I was annoyed because I didn't know they had that early screening. Uh, So I've already booked it for Thursday, and then I found, oh, it's available Sunday night. Son of a, and I go, look. All sold out. But oh well, we don't have any numbers for that yet, do we, Sperling?
0: No, we don't, and you won't until until, uh, next weekend.
1: They well, why not? Because it was that. sun. It was Sunday night. Why do they want to hide it? And why did they do a screening on a Sunday night? Which, like, why not? Now that means they're going to miss out on that first full screening of. Uh, it's just one showtime, I guess. It's just to get word of mouth out there, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, there's not. There's a lot of good word of mouth about anyone but you. The rom com made another eleven million dollars, and it hit two hundred million dollars worldwide. The rom com is back. And Argyle... You asked asked
0: about why Sunday night? Because Sunday night is mm -hmm. a very slow night at the box office, usually. So why not try and get a sold-out screening at an IMAX theater?
1: No, I meant, why not Monday night? Another another slow night at the box office, and you would have it all in the same week. But they don't care about weeks anyway. They only count weekends, so they wouldn't care. They'll start counting the box office on Thursday, but if that movie had had a screening on Monday night, they wouldn't have thrown that in, or they would have tried, maybe. But there you go. Argyle made another $10 million. That's at $87 million and counting. Scrolling down the list, we have a lot of other movies. Go to our list, follow our show links, and you can see what's going on. Uh, The big news, I think, here is Poor Things hit $100 million. That's the Oscar hopeful. Ordinary Angels opened up here in North America. It's a faith-based film. Stars Hilary Swank and the guy from Reacher. And it's a touching film, apparently. It opened to $7 million. And there was some grumbling that the studio's Sure, they're opening up movie, some movies and not putting them right to streaming, but they're not marketing them strongly enough. Uh, okay, uh, though I did kind of feel, you know what, uh, isn't that what the exhibitors always say when a movie doesn't quite click? You're not marketing enough.
0: Well, I mean, I think the first people that would complain about that are the creatives themselves, because they, of course, pay uh, attention to that kind of thing. Uh, and, but they wouldn't and think, publicly, you know, uh, you'd be shocked. I mean, sometimes the directors and producers will. Not, not usually the actors do not, unless the, the producers and directors. Come out and say hey you know yeah my film didn't live up to expectations but they didn't market it it happens every now and again in this case ordinary angels i found out about this through the marketing because lionsgate was out there banging on the door getting exhibitors to try and book the film and they were showing it to people and uh they were trying to get uh exhibitors to book the film it's a faith-based movie it opened at the high end for a faith-based movie
1: well, I don't know about that. They were expecting uh, uh, $10 million at least. You got Hillary Swank, and you got the guy in Reacher, and they were hoping for a little bit more, I think. It cost about $13 million to make, but my feeling is you don't know what they spend. You're like, oh, it doesn't seem like I heard about It, it isn't the same as you didn't hear about it, and you may not be plugged into the areas where they're going to really heavily market a faith-based film. If you're not watching those outlets and websites and things, maybe you're missing out on some of the marketing, but the fact is, Except for the really big movies where it's obvious we don't really know what they spend on marketing, right? They keep that a closely guarded secret. It's not like it's a number we can track.
0: Yeah, it it isn't a number we can track. Certainly the MPA in their annual report tries to uh, give you an average of what gets spent for a… a big blockbuster movie, but they don't, you know, I, Tom Quinn over at neon was very upfront in a recent podcast, uh, with, with Matt Bellany over, uh, at the town and explained precisely how much he spent on and, and neon spent on, you know, a, a lot of films, including Ferrari. He, he said, we picked it up for $15 million, our most expensive movie to date. We spent $15 million marketing it. He talked about how much money he spent on parasite 15? and how much 15,
1: Marketing 15 million? 15 yeah. million for Ferrari. Ferrari. That's it? 15 million dollars? One five? Yes.
0: That's nothing. Yes. Keep in mind, they're only marketing in North America because that's the only place they have the film for. So it's 15 million dollars North America only.
1: That seems really low.
0: Well, that's his point is that that's why he's so willing to talk about it because he's basically saying, look, here's how you make money. You've got a, And he was very open about talking about the awards campaign for Parasite, which I think he said they spent a million dollars on.
1: So you're saying, yeah, they're not spending money. We're not going to waste money on theatrical, on marketing. Because, I mean, Ferrari was a disaster.
0: Yes. Well, for them, it's a $30 million all in. You know, So they, they spent $30 million getting that movie into North American movie theaters. It cost $100 million to make. And Quinn's point was I can't speak for the producers of that movie and why they spent that much money <laughs> making that movie.
1: But for Well, that's us, not a lot of money with the Michael Mann and that cast. That's not a lot of money for a period film with that big cast and that money. But it only goes what? $40 million you know dollars worldwide. It goes $40 million worldwide. How is that a success story for him? He spent 30 million. Oh, he that's wasn't a loser. saying it was a
0: success story. He wasn't saying it was, he was explaining- He's just he, boasting
2: that we didn't market it. Uh, Maybe it would have made more money. That sounds like nothing. Independent to me. film?
0: In, oh, no, no, it's a $100 hundred
1: a million dollar film directed by Michael Mann. It's not a. It's not strange. It's not you know all of us strangers. A British art film. It's bloody Ferrari, a big film with action and cars and movie stars. If you pay fifteen million dollars to promote Perfect Days, that would sound like a lot. All of us strangers, that would be a lot. Poor things even, that would be a lot. But for Ferrari? That doesn't seem like a movie that you have a small marketing budget. But what do I know? Maybe exhibitors have a point. But what they do love is when special events really work out. And that's certainly the case for the TV series, The Chosen. The Chosen is about the life of Jesus. It's another faith-based project. And the current four season, they are showing entirely in theaters before it comes to television. First, for two weeks, they showed episodes one to three. That grossed uh, $12 million. Now, for the last two weeks, they've shown episodes four to six. That's grossed a total of $8 million. And next week, they're going to have episodes seven and eight for one week only. So they've grossed $20 million at the box office for a TV show that people paid to help make and will pay to watch online. Here's my question. Is can, Are
0: they showing it? Outside the weekends, or are they saying no, it's one night, or you know, here's the time you no, to no, no, it, it has
1: full screenings, it has full screenings, okay. I believe. I don't think it's just for one, no, because they made four million dollars. I don't know that they have all day, every day, but but I think it's a fairly robust screening schedule. Okay, maybe it depends on the market you're in, but nonetheless, they've made you know, 12 million dollars from the first three episodes, eight million dollars from the second three episodes. And I can anticipate they'll probably make about $8 million or $6 million for the final. They're going to make $25 million from showing this TV series in theaters where people pay to see it twice. That's, a, yeah, that's, that's an remarkable. amazing, amazing accomplishment. And of course, it's an unusual one-off show. We've seen Game of Thrones and season openers come to movie theaters and things like that. Uh, But it doesn't happen a lot. So you need the right film at the right time. Certainly there are films that fall through the cracks for us that we don't track them very well because they're never quite hitting a million dollars or they're not at the top of the charts in other countries. But Perfect Days, the Vim Vendors film, we've been talking about that. uh, That's now at $18 million worldwide. And the British film I just mentioned, All of Us Strangers, starring Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal, two very handsome men, uh, that is at now on Hulu streaming, but it grossed $16 million uh, worldwide. So those are pretty nice little success stories for those uh, art films. And of course, neither of them stars a woman. What's happening to films led by women? Well, you
0: might recall the uh, inclusi- inclusivity, uh, I don't want to say waiver, it's uh the inc- inclusivity clause that Francis McDormand talked about at the Oscars one year, uh, Sarah Smith over at USC put together that study and, and that, that concept, and they just published a new study and films led by women, just 30% of the top 100 US releases, uh, a 10-year low. Now, keep in mind, uh, and this isn't an excuse of any kind, I'm just letting, this is more of a... An explainer. They used the top 100 theatrically released films. They did not count any films that were made for streaming or that only appeared on streaming. So that's one thing to keep in mind. They said Barbie and Taylor we're talking Swift. about big Hollywood. They, they we're talking
1: of... about big Hollywood movies. We're yeah, talking about yeah. big Hollywood. We're not talking about art films. We're not talking about made for TV on Lifetime Channel. We're saying of the Correct. big movies people go to see in theaters, only a third of them st- were starring a woman.
0: Correct, or or I think directed by a woman, if I'm not mistaken. I'm pretty sure it was, Mm -hmm. you know, helmed by a woman. They were basically saying, you know, were these female-led, and that included director. Uh, And I I actually overheard There are a
1: precious few of those anyway, So, but I think it's the same thing. Barbie was directed by a woman and starred a woman, yes. Cocaine Bear was directed by a woman and starred a woman. But it's a 10-year low. Barbie and Taylor Swift can only get you so far. Only three movies out of the top 100 featured a woman who was 45 or older. Cocaine Bear... Magic Mike's Last Dance, and My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. Two of the, one of those was a hit. Men Over 45, however, they were in a third of all films. Not three films, but 32 films <laughs> as lead or co-lead, including 24 that just had white men only. Now, the list does not include ensemble films like 80 for Brady, though I think that would be pretty clearly a, a female-led movie. I don't know why they don't do that, but if you add them in, it really doesn't move the needle. So most films not starring women, and when they do, they're young. So not the best thing. And you don't want to give them an award for that. But it was award season. A lot of awards happened this weekend. The WGA, the Writers Guild of America, is so far behind that they're just doing their nominations now. They've just announced their nominations, and they'll when all be familiar. I saw that story. To- I was mm-hmm. like, wait, not the winners. The nominations? I was like, oh. Yeah. They're going to be giving out the awards in May, and people are going to be like, huh? So it's the usual suspects. If you're looking for what's missing from the Writers Guild list, it might be because the writers of those movies weren't you know, members of the WGA, but of the Oscar contenders, the hopefuls, four movies are missing from this nomination list, and those are Anatomy of a Fall, Maestro, Poor Things, and The Zone of Interest. So if you're wondering who's got the inside track, You figure those films, you're not going to get an indication from the Writers Guild of America, or they're really not that excited by them. Either they weren't eligible or they weren't excited. But yes, Barbie and Oppenheimer and The Holdovers and Killers of the Flower Moon and so on are in the mix. But they're not competing in the same category when it comes to Barbie and Oppenheimer. Uh, Another really interesting award is the Visual Effects Awards. They came out. Have you seen the film The Creator by Gareth Edwards?
0: I have not. Although, uh, you know, it came and went so fast, I did not see it.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a sci-fi film and it apparently had great effects. My nephew's fiance, he loved it. He thought it really looked great. And it won big at the Visual Effects Awards, the VSX. The creator won five wins, including best photo Reel feature. And the big animated winner was Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. It was an entirely different story in France, wasn't it, Sperling?
0: Yes, uh, Anatomy of a Fall won Best Picture. Surprising? Nobody. Uh, it also won Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Editing. The Dog, uh, Messi, also won Best Marketing Tool. No, I mean, it's <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, if they, look, I was surprised when Zone of Interest didn't win the Palme d'Or, but then I was reminded, well, Anatomy of a Fall is kind of a French movie, and it is a French film Not festival. kind
1: of. It's a French movie.
0: Yeah, and so, why well, I'm being... Sarcastic, but yes. Yeah, and so it does not surprise me that Anatomy of a Fall, which is up for Best Picture at the Academy Awards and all these other awards show, the BAFTAs, etc., does not surprise me that the Césars in France selected it as their best film of the year.
1: Well, if you're wondering who the indie folk love, the French people love Anatomy of a Fall, and the indie folk love Past Lives, a very good film, well worth your time. At the Spirit Awards, it won Best Picture and Best Director. It's not up for Best Director at the Oscars because there are only five slots and uh, the director didn't quite make the cut, but it is up for Best Picture, so that tells you who the cool folk like. And they also like Jeffrey White for Best Actor in American Fiction, Best Lead, I should say. And Best Supporting is Divine Joy Randolph for The Holdover. She looks like she's going to stroll right up to the Oscars and get it there. They also have an award I've been pushing my award group to tack on, and that's Best Casting. The Oscars will be having a Best Casting award in two years, long overdue. Uh, The Spirit Awards call it the Robert Altman Award. Best Casting Award, which I like, because Altman always had great casts. And this year, it went to Showing Up. A Kelly Reichardt film uh, starring Michelle Williams about this woman and a who works at a, at a art school and she's working on her new project of some sculptures that she's doing and uh, it's a it's a nice film uh, it's got a great little vibe and a great cast so it was a a well chosen award those are all the fun awards but we've got two big ones the producers guild and the actors sag can, can I those just say about showing up
0: our friend yeah. our friend Stephen Garrett I saw this with him and like halfway through the movie he was like. Good grief, just take a shower already. The main character is constantly complaining. She
1: can't take a shower because there's no hot water. And he's like, just... Well, her landlord (laughs) landlord won't get her shower. It's very annoying. It's a very realistic movie, if that's the right word. It has a real real, lived-in, real-life vibe to it. She gets along with the landlord, but she butts heads with her, and the passive-aggressive way the landlord deals with her and she with her. There's a lot of little things to like about the movie. I had some problems with the subplot about the brother and the family, but the main vibe of it and the main stuff with Michelle Williams, I really enjoyed quite a bit. But the Producers Guild and SAG are big precursors for the Oscars. Tell us what happened, Sperling.
0: Uh, So let's go with Oppenheimer for both. Best film, best picture. So best film at the PGA Awards, best uh, picture at the SAG Awards, best animated film at the PGA Award. The producers thought Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse won that uh, that prize. American Symphony won the best documentary at the PGA
1: Awards. And it's not even nominated, not even nominated for the Oscar. Yeah, everybody
0: thought that was a shoe-in, and, and the morning that the Oscars came out, I was actually staying with someone who was working on the campaign for uh, The Eternal Memory, which did get nominated, uh, and he, they were shocked that, A, they were nominated. They thought they might get nominated, but they were like, ah, oh, there's too many good movies like American Symphony. Uh, American Symphony, nowhere to be found. The Michael J. Fox documentary, not included. They, that shocked, shocked them uh, that they were included, and those weren't.
1: Did anything shock you at the SAG Awards, the Screen Actors Guild Awards?
0: I don't think so. Uh, Lily Gladstone won for Killers of the Flower Moon. I think it's, you know, everybody said that Emma Stone was a shoo in for Best Actress at the Oscars. I'm wondering if maybe she's not. Maybe it will go to Lily Gladstone.
1: Or, or, or Sandra Huller. There's a lot of love for Zone of Interest and Anatomy of a Fall, both of which are up for Best Picture. People keep showing the clip of her arguing with her ex-husband or husband or something. There's some marital discord going on. I haven't seen the film yet. So there's actually a good groundswell for Sandra Hüller as well. Two of her films are up for Best Picture. People really like those films. They clearly must really like her as well. So I think of all the awards, the top awards, top five or six, Best Actress is absolutely the nail-biter. Lily Gladstone, Emma Stone, or Sandra Huller, really for two movies, though she's nominated for Anatomy of a Fall, all seem like strong possibilities. I have no idea, but Best Picture, Best Director, Oppenheimer. Best Actor and Supporting Actor, Killian Murphy and Robert Downey Jr. And Divine Joy Randolph for The Holdovers, she's going to win Best Supporting Actress. So the real tension is Best Actress and then all the little categories. That's where you can make up your Oscar pool. So watch those shorts. And you can
0: watch those shorts. A lot of them are, are on, uh, do, same with the short documentaries. A lot of them are on newspaper websites or on Netflix or on Hulu. They're, they're all over the place. You can find them. Uh, I wish they were available
1: to rent easily. I wish they were available in a package online. I know they're in theaters, but why you can't just go to Amazon or Apple and rent the whole package, I don't know. I don't know either. Yeah. I think it would be a big deal if they did. And that's, it wouldn't be a big deal, but it would be nice because there's only a few weeks span where people care about those shorts. They should care about them all year long, of course, but it would be great to help promote them as much as possible. I think in this day and age, yeah, you can stumble across them or search them out, but they should be easily available. Maybe make a few bucks.
0: And I know you, you mentioned big and deal together, and that's usually a sign for me to mention that we do have a segment copyrighted. Oh
1: my goodness. I'm sorry, I skipped over unions and firings. I, I forgot all about it. was going to ask
0: if, if the union news was a big deal or a big It
1: war. is indeed.
0: <laughs> because Vice Media, I mean, look, look, Vice has been undergoing, you know, they have shrunk from 3,000 employees to 900 last fall, and now it's just shutting down their, their website. They're, they're kind of becoming a production company for, for other For other outlets, this was going to be the next MTV, according to uh, its founder, and now it's basically on life support.
1: It was the new form of media. This was how journalism would be done. So it's very sad to see uh, our hearts go out to all the people who got fired. And when people get fired, other people who have jobs say, "You know what? Join a union. That doesn't seem like a bad idea." Off Broadway, employees at the Atlantic Theater Company voted overwhelmingly to join IATSE—that's the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. It's about 178 workers in all. Most of them voted. turnout. I don't know where the other, you know, 40 people were. Uh, 129 uh, people actually voted and only one of them voted no. So there you go. Um, But, you know, what's going to happen? We've got more strikes looming. We've got uh, studios have to talk with IATSE and the Hollywood Teamsters, which is the Teamsters Local 399. That starts on March 4th. For a deal that expires July 31st, we link to a good story in Hollywood Reporter about the feature, uh, talking about the state of mind of crew members. Are they ready to strike or are they exhausted and out of money because of the two strikes they've already dealt with? I think it's a great story and I think the clear message should be, please, studios, producers, they will strike. (laughs) These are the same issues everybody else fought over. Give them a good deal and let's move on because there is some good news, isn't there, Sprawling, At least if it comes to musicians.
0: Yes, the uh, American Federation of Musicians, they struck a tentative deal with the AMPTP, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the same group that IATSE would be striking uh, and is trying to cut a deal with. Uh, no details yet, uh, but the, the, the folks over at the AFM, they're like, hey, this is, this is a big
1: win. It's a big deal, right? Oh,
0: I see what you're saying. It's a big deal. Okay. Oh, okay. I see. I see. Because now you want me to move along into Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, by the way, uh, I I knew Michael would include the story because he's a big Beatles fan, but also because it was kind of big news, in my opinion, the Beatles are coming to the big screen, and I'm not talking about the insects. Okay. I'm talking about the musical group, in case you're wondering, Uh, in a very ambitious project, director Sam Mendes will helm four movies about the Beatles with each film telling the story of each lad, one for John, Paul, George and Ringo. I guess Pete Best is he's still he's cut out again. And uh, each movie will be told from their own perspective. Mendes pitched the story and got approval from Paul and Ringo, as well as Sean Lennon and George's family, along with the rights to all their music, both Beatles and solo. After a bidding war, it's been picked up by Sony Pictures. And yes, the films, all four of them, will get a theatrical release. The project is going out to writers now, and planning is underway for when and how to film them. All at once, or individually, in different styles. That would actually be kind of cool. Those details
1: will follow. Big deal or big whoop? Big whoop. What? I mean, it's ridiculous. He just has an idea. There's no script, for God's sake. This is absurd. Why? Like, anybody can have a good idea. You need the script and know how they're going to tackle it, or what ta- era span are they going to do, how are they going to film it, what's the idea, before you can say, okay, that actually is, I mean, yeah, oh, you should make a movie about the Beatles. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> Not. <laughs> you should make a movie about each Beatle. Of course, suck up to each of them. Sure, fine. But ideas are cheap. You've got to actually have a script. Nonetheless, it will be the most exciting casting since Gone with the Wind. Tom Holland as Paul, Barry Keegan as Ringo, Sperling as Yoko Ono. Who knows what will happen? So, yeah, I would be more excited. Sean Ono Lennon kind of guy, you know? Yeah, I would be more excited if they had scripts and an actual plan rather than a vague idea.
0: The Beatles will be coming to the movies, but imagine if they could tour. That's about the only way Live Nation might have had an even better 2023. The live event venue and ticketing company saw attendance and revenue soar all around the world and concert going is definitely more international than ever, with K-pop and Latin actors all over the top 50 charts. Uh, In all, Live Nation sold more than 145 million tickets to more than 50,000 events around the world. Thanks to Taylor Swift and Beyonce and others, it was a $22.7 billion business for the company with operating income hitting $1.07 billion. Big deal or big whoop?
1: Well, it's a big deal. I anticipate next year will be lower because you won't have Taylor and Beyonce touring as much as they did this year, but you never know. Uh, I don't know who else could step in there. So, But that won't mean the end of the world. It will just mean we just had the biggest concert tour of all time with Taylor Swift and a massive tour from Beyonce. They're both still touring, I think. I know Taylor is. I think Beyonce may have ended. I'm not sure. But Taylor's got more days. But nonetheless, it won't be uh, as as big a leg as it was the first time around. So, you know, probably there'll be a downturn next year. That's what happens.
0: Warner Brothers Discovery did not have a very good Christmas at the box office. And this whole Warner Brothers story, as well as the Paramount <laughs> stories, could be you know, its own segment. Wonka was a hit, okay? But Aquaman... And the lost kingdom and the color purple were both money losers in the fourth quarter plus an ad downturn for its numerous linear television channels hurt the company overall nonetheless an earnings call about the entire year managed to find some good news wbd claims its streaming division is for the first time ever um first among major studios that is to show a profit for an entire year in this case yeah, in this case, about $100 million. Now, streaming divisions vary from studio to studio, and once again, in this case, they, they refer to the streaming division as direct-to-consumer, and it includes the money brought in by the premium cable channel, HBO, which isn't exactly direct-to-consumer. Mm, uh, no, but it's not streaming.
1: It. And it's not
0: streaming. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Still, ads were down 14%. The fourth quarter loss for the company as a whole was $400 million, but that's not as much as one year earlier. And its stock fell 9% on the news. Uh, I think it was down to 10% at one point. It hit a new low. Over the past 12 months, its stock down 46%. Not to worry, though. David Zaslav has an attack plan for 2024. What he doesn't have is any forecast financially for the entire year of 2024. He and Gunner, uh, the CFO, they were like, "Yeah, we're not giving any guidance." It's like, "Oh yeah, companies on the rise usually do that." Um, anyway, uh, I think, well, big deal or big whoop first.
1: Big deal. Tell us why. And tell us about well, the shenanigans around streaming profitability, which is a joke.
0: Well, I think HBO, you know, the network alone on its own, used to bring in $2 billion a year in profit. In profit, not not in revenue. This year, when when HBO was combined with streaming, which they say is making money, the whole division made $100 million. So you lost $1.9 billion somewhere. (laughs) And this was all done while you cut hundreds, thousands of jobs, actually, hundreds of millions of dollars out of thousands of jobs, as well as you've reduced the amount of content you're making. So you've lowered costs drastically. And you've only made $100 million. No, absolutely nobody was fooled by this. Everybody, you know, the, the amount of like eye rolling when they were like, we've, we've made $100 million. This trade. Everybody was like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, here's I think the it was.
1: I think it was the Holly Reporter that actually went with that as their first headline. Uh, it was one of the trades. I apologize if it was deadline, but they had that as the, I was like, I looked at it, I'm like, really? And then all the other headlines were negative. And I think they kind of just buried that story and said, never mind about that. That was their take on it. But uh, actually, <laughs> so you know, I, I think, think they what happens is going with the studio's spin. Well, they went with the studio's spin. They said, oh, that's what the studio's saying. I also think
0: that they listened but- to the um, earnings calls live. And so they're trying to be first, be first, and they're like typing as right. things go, and they publish before the call's even over. And the next thing you know, or it's like, oh. they even
1: think about whether what the studio said is accurate or fair or should be treated as the way it is. Exactly. They didn't do their job.
0: The bottom line is this. Their linear revenue from like the Discovery Channel and all of their, their you know food network, all those linear channels, including, you know... Uh, you know, well, all, you know, Bravo, all, is Bravo a part of it? I don't think so. But that's declining. And it's declining pretty fast. The, and that's because everybody's moving over and migrating to streaming. Unfortunately, the streaming revenue is not replacing it. And worse, the streaming revenue doesn't even look like it will ever fully replace the linear revenue that they're losing. So they're basically trading in a dollar to get 25 cents. And it's just it's not making any sense whatsoever. And of course, the whole free cash flow thing irks me to no end.
1: And of course, uh, let's keep in mind, uh, David Zaslav's compensation over five years was about half a billion dollars, half a billion dollars. We don't even know what he's got yet for, for the previous year that's just happened. But half a billion dollars uh, over, over five years. Stock is down 46%. Um, their debt is down now as their well. Debt went is down also from down f- yeah, from $48 billion down to $42 billion, So they've cut $6 billion in debt. They still have $42 billion in debt, but that's a, that's a good place to be. At least it's trending downward. And Paramount's not doing so great either. Paramount put on, is put on a negative credit watch by S&P Global.
0: Yeah, Standards & Poor's uh, said, yeah, you know, we don't think you're going to be able to pay back that note on March 16th. <laughs> we think there might be a problem there. Now, like Warner Brothers Discovery it owes $42 billion. It is now worth just over $20 billion. If that's what its market cap is. And I don't think we did, we kind of mentioned Paramount last week and we didn't really do, we could have done better, let's put it this way, in covering Paramount because listen to this, the week they had. Starting on February 11th, they broadcast the Super Bowl with ads that cost $7 million for 30 seconds. That's pretty good, right? That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Then on Monday, they got the great news. Monday the 12th, Nielsen announces huge ratings, one hundred and twenty three million viewers for the Super Bowl, like one of the highest rated televised broadcasts of all time. They Great highest. news. Then news. So, so that is, you know, when you decide on Tuesday, the 13th, you go, you know what, we're going to we're going to lay off 800 employees. So that they right. said that on <laughs> the, the. And then on Wednesday, Warren Buffett, who a year ago invested a billion dollars into Paramount Global, he announced that he sold a third of his positions in Paramount, which usually means that's what he that's what he had to announce. He's probably sold off a lot more, but he had to make public that he sold off at least a third. Once it hits that level, he has to make an announcement. But more than likely that traditionally you'd be selling off before you have to make that announcement because, of course, it would tank. Then on Thursday, Bloomberg, Lucas Shaw specifically, published a huge expose detailing all of the wrong turns and wrong moves and ill-advised mistakes that senior managers and ownership made over the past two to three to 10 years over at Paramount. Then on Friday, Paramount and Comcast, apparently, according to The Wall Street Journal, are discussing merging their streaming services. Some people have said The way that story died so quickly is because it it almost seemed planted in the Wall Street Journal because it was like, oh, Mm -hmm. we're having a bad week. Quick, uh, we're talking Mm -hmm. to Comcast. So I I, I don't know. I just talk about a hectic week. But really, here's the, the long and short of it is Paramount this year will be sold. Depending on who it's sold to, this industry will go from five studios to what may be four. That is not good for this industry.
1: No. And it's down from seven, you know, what it should have been. We've lost Fox. Who else have we lost? MGM. We've lost, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and you you can make
0: arguments that oh MGM is back because of Amazon. No, it's not back the way it used to be. No. But Beyonce is back. Yes. I mean she made history. Again, her new country. Flavored song. I like the way we say country flavored like it was crystal light. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> the song is Texas Holdeman and hit number one on the country charts, making her the first black female artist in history to do so. She's also just one of a handful of acts to hit number one on both the R&B and country charts, along with Justin Bieber and Ray Charles. Some said the song wasn't country enough. Others said country music was too hidebound and
1: prejudiced. But Bay said, watch me. I don't know why I said it in that voice. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? <laughs> well, anyone who's, some, some you know, people who argue it wasn't country enough, you haven't listened to country music in the last 15 years because believe me, there's a lot of hip-hop beats, a lot of rapping with the bro music, so give me a break. There's the occasional twang of a guitar, but there's pure traditional country music and there's country music on the on the radio that you hear today, and Texas Holden fits right in. Uh, there are certainly country acts that are people of color Darius Rucker of Hooting the Blowfish, Big and Rich, Charlie Pride, Mickey Guyton, uh, Camille Parker, just debuted at the Grand Ole Opry. But yes, country is sorely lacking in, in, in people of color, especially women. So it's nice to see. And by the way, Beyonce just hit number one on the Hot 100 with Texas Hold'em. So she's number one on two different charts. And Billy Joel, his new song is at number 62. Keep going, Billy. I bet it's number one on the AC charts soon enough. I
0: wonder if Billy Joe would would sing about Beyonce as if she were an uptown girl. Living <laughs> in her uptown world. Keep um, Tyler Perry, by the way, you know, Tyler Perry, producer, actor extraordinaire. He, he is very worried about artificial intelligence. Of course, he's also using AI. In an upcoming film, Perry decided to age his character by using artificial intelligence during post-production rather than spending hours in a makeup chair. I guess he spent enough hours in a makeup chair, so he's like, hey, man, I've done my time. No more makeup chair. He threw the makeup chair away and brought in the computers. But AI is also throwing a wrench into Tyler's long Tyler's, like we're best friends, Perry's long term plans. Uh, he halted plans to add 12 sound stages to his Atlanta TV and Film Empire, a project with an eight hundred million dollar price tag. Now, like us, you might be asking, well, why? Well, we can tell you he's seen what OpenAI's Sora tool can do. That's a program that turns text descriptions, a text string into full blown videos. And without any regulation, it might just upend entirely the desire for most films and TV shows to build practical, real-life sets. Far-fetched, you might ask? Not so far-fetched that Perry is willing to go forward with building more sound stages today. Big deal or big whoop?
1: Well, it's a big deal. No, uh, no matter whether he's jumping the gun or worried when he, in a way that he shouldn't be, it's, it's stopped a $800 million investment in Atlanta sound stages. So that's uh, it's having an impact right now today. People are going, "Whoa, hold on." what's this going to mean down the road? I'm not sure I want to do this because that investment won't pay off for 10 or 20 or 30 years. Hmm. So that's, that's, a, that's a tough one, but it's hard to argue with at the moment. I can see pausing it myself.
0: Now, did you, have you looked at OpenAI, Sora?
1: No. It's pretty I, I know it's funky. incredible.
0: It's f- I think yeah. that it's, it's so striking that I think a lot of visual effects artists were like, okay, it's not perfect yet, but last year didn't exist at all so it's kind of right it really it's pretty good now what i would say is who's feeding that where's the corpus as they say for that right yeah uh walmart by the way they just bought a smart tv manufacturer vizio for 2.3 billion dollars vizio rivals Samsung for top dog status and sales of televisions here in the united states but this deal it isn't really about smart tvs what walmart really values is vizio's smartcast Now, Smartcast is an operating system that competes with Roku and Amazon already, and they already have 18 million active accounts on Smartcast. Roku is the leading platform for people streaming content to their TVs, found in about 33 percent of smart TVs and all those, uh, you know, external devices as well, and that's just 33 percent in the U.S. Now, Walmart will be adding Vizio to the smart TVs that it sells, making the platform a major rival for Roku, especially since Walmart sells a lot of TVs. And of course, Roku is making big bucks on ad dollars. It's raking it in. Roku stock fell 24 percent after a poor quarterly earnings report and then Then another 5% after the Walmart deal was announced. Could you imagine losing close to 30% of your value in like a week? Big deal or big whoop.
1: Well, it's a big deal. Everybody wants to be that portal that you use to access... Your television networks, your streaming channels, your on-demand stuff, your video games, everybody wants to be that portal so they can have your eyeballs first. So that's what Walmart wants to do. Uh, Roku stock may have been overvalued a little bit, and we're not stockbrokers here, but it was at 68 one year ago, and now after this fall, it's at 66 today. It peaked at about 106 in December, whether that was right or whether it's back to where it should be, I don't know. But I do know 18 million accounts, I assume that's about 18 million households, and there are 125 million households in the, in North, in the U.S. So that's about 15% of all households uh, that, the, that they have access to right now, and it's only going to get bigger. Nielsen recently noted on a cold day in January, it
0: measured more people streaming more content than any other day in history, and that's just in... Uh, you know, a couple uh, of countries. It's a huge milestone. Uh, And I think, you know, I think it's only the United. States. Anyway, keep in mind, it's only for the streaming that is measured by Nielsen. They track smart TV viewing like we were just talking about for certain platforms only. If you stream something on your laptop like Michael does or tablet, like Michael's 95-year-old mother does when she binge watches (laughs) Call the Midwife, or your phone, like my kids do, well, that isn't counted yet. Also, it only includes certain countries, as I just mentioned. Overall, TV and cable, uh, which is basically the same thing in our book, They are still at the top of those charts. Cable is about 28 percent of all TV watching and broadcast over 24 percent. Add those two together, you're about at about 52 percent of all TV viewing. Streaming is second with 36 percent of all TV use and other which I don't know what other is, counts for 12%. When you look at individual platforms, now we're talking YouTube, it's the most popular, accounting for 8.5% of all TV viewing. That's more than Netflix at 7.9%, Amazon Prime way back at 2.8%, and Hulu at 2.7%. By the way, more people watch Peacock than HBO Max or, or Max or whatever it's called now. Heck, more people watch Tubi than Max. Is this a big deal or a big whoop?
1: Well, it's a big deal, and it shows you how much room for growth there still is when HBO Max is beaten out by Tubi, or also shows you how much different type of viewing there is out there. So yeah, all these different platforms, we've got links to our show notes to show you them all broken down. It's very interesting, you know, Paramount Plus is at 0.9%, but Peacock's at 1.6%. It's right behind Disney Plus. It's very close to Disney Plus, Plus. So, and they're all way behind Netflix and YouTube. Uh, You know, whenever my friend says, my friend, John, I call him, he's like, oh, I'm streaming videos on YouTube. I'm like, no, why you go find something? Don't let the algorithm pick something and watch it. Well, he watches a lot of stuff that way. And guess what? A lot of other people do too. Just a hot minute
0: ago, someone was suggesting physical media was making a comeback. I'm not sure who that person was, but uh, it wasn't me. Don't tell that to Disney. The company just announced it's outsourcing its DVD and Blu-ray business to Sony. Now. Hold on to your hats here because that news comes on the heels of the shiny discs bringing in more than $2 billion a year in 2022, but just roughly $1.5 billion in 2023 and a predicted $1 billion. In 2024, that's right. Two years, a loss of one billion dollars in revenue. Is everyone getting out of the business because sales are falling or are sales falling because Netflix shuttered its physical rental business? Best Buy won't even sell Blu-rays or DVDs online. And Walmart and Redbox are about the last physical location selling or renting films and TV shows that way. Is it too late to put my VHS collection on eBay? Um, hold on, I got to look up eBay.com. Uh, oh, and is this a big deal or a big whoop?
1: I guess it's a big whoop, but no, people were saying that consumers were recognizing that not everything is available to stream all the time or forever, that there's lots of stuff that falls through the cracks. And if you really love something or really love a particular movie or TV show, you shouldn't assume it will always be there for you. And if you really want to own it and watch it, you better buy it. So there was a little noise about that. And I think that's where the sales are coming. People are not renting stuff as much anymore via physical disc, except for Redbox. People aren't buying as much automatically like they used to. They're just watching it when it comes to one of their big streamers. But hey, you love Northern Exposure. You would have been unable to watch it for like 10 years unless you bought it. Same thing for a lot of different shows, believe me. So it's not making a comeback though. And I think it's more of a chicken egg thing. I think it's the fact that they're just not available. You can't walk into a store and see them. You know, other than Amazon, I guess that's about you know that's about the only uh, you know the only place you can go online. You know, so when there's no stores you can walk into and browse and see, oh, I love that TV show, I want to buy that, or I love those movies. Uh, You know, there's no impulse purchasing, there's none of that happening. So I think it's more more about uh, the opportunities to buy that stuff is disappearing than the desire. I think more and more people are realizing, oh yeah, I'm looking for that thing I want to watch, and it's not online. I can't find it. It's annoying.
0: You know, uh, a, somebody was asking me from, from another country. They were asking about Woody Allen movies. And I was going over you know, what Woody Allen movies they should watch and which ones uh, were available to watch. And not all of them are available to watch. Most of them are not available to watch anywhere, including rental, by the way. You can't even rent it.
1: Like the big ones? Well, that's because he had such a patchwork of companies involved. I imagine you know he yes. went from company to company, lots of different producers involved. So, uh, are, are the you mean the recent crap, or you mean the big ones? Like you can't rent Hannah and her sisters, or Manhattan, or Annie Hall, or those are available. But some of the small H- ones. H- Hannah, what, what I Hannah bl-
0: I believe is Annie Hall is Manhattan is. Uh, there were a, a couple like I think Radio Days you can't get. Uh, Broadway, Danny Rose. Yeah, some Great of the movie. some of all the 80s Zellig, stuff. Yeah, I, I can't. Re- I, I don't know where
1: Zelig went. Uh, much like Zelig, I have them aired. all. I have them all on Blu-ray and DVD.
0: Yeah, there so you go. you can go. Come Vicky over to Christina my house, in Barcelona. Oh no, you well, can. Sorry. I'm surprised. Match Point. You have to. Uh, you have to rent that. Um,
1: you know, small time crooks. Have, a lot of them. You have to rent. Well, rent is available. You, you just mean it's not on a service that you already pay for. If you if yeah, you're saying like, it's available to rent for three or four or five dollars, that's available. Yeah, that's true. That counts. You're right. Yeah, no, no, that you're counts. Right. That's that's not unavailable. I'm talking about stuff that literally isn't available at all, and that happens a lot more than you think. But the domination of Taylor Swift continues. Uh, Billboard magazine just said she passed the Beatles. She spent the most what? weeks in Billboard's top ten for albums, uh, just past their record that the Beatles held for more than sixty years so, uh, you know, she's just a kid too, right? She's just going to be eligible for president. You know, she'll turn 35 uh, just in time for the next inauguration in 2025. So uh, she's just a kid. A lot of time to go. Indeed, Michael, it is
0: time for Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business. And more importantly, how they affect you well this week of course uh, this affects everybody that goes to the movies because the superhero movie is facing its biggest enemy yet audience indifference madam web is the latest superhero flick to open to poor reviews and or bad box office fans are tired of doing their work when every iteration of the marvel cinematic universe ties into one another. And it feels like one long story rather than movies you can just watch and enjoy on their own. Remember those days you could just watch, you know, Iron Man and it was a self-contained movie. Uh, The fun just isn't there anymore. But you know what? It's not all bad news with some great movies and TV shows and a reboot in the works that looks like they're getting smarter about the future. Joining us to talk about this is journalist Jeff Boucher, the guru of gurus when it comes to big blockbuster movies and especially comic book fair. He's been a big wig at Comic-Con. He's been on the set of more big franchises than you can shake a stick at. He's sat down with the top stars and writers and directors, and he's just as well versed with the top talent in comics. Jeff launched highly successful verticals for the Los Angeles Times and Heavy Metal and is working on a book about the Marvel Cinematic Universe that capitalizes on his 20 plus years of experience covering this world. Jeff, thank you for joining us. And where can people follow you online? And what new projects should we be watching out for?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, I'm still on Twitter, X and Facebook and Instagram, uh, just under Jeff Boucher. It looks like Geoff Boucher, as you guys know. And uh, the book is still coming. So
0: Uh, now, here's a question for you. And I know, Michael, you have a bunch of questions. Twitter X, are you still you're still on it? I've noticed. Are you still getting as much uh, kind of? Are you still on it as much? And are you still getting as much feedback from it or interaction?
2: No, not really. Not uh, yeah. It's just it's uh, demoralizing and uh, and uh, deflating sometimes. So I just I just have it there for when I'm ready to, to use it again. But it, it's not very
1: inspiring, that's for sure. And nothing has taken its place, that's for sure. But there is some good news out there in comic book world. EC Comics is back. After more than 70 years, the first new comic books from the legendary imprint EC will be back on shelves this summer. Forget superheroes. EC Comics tackles genres like horror, sci-fi, fantasy, true crime with stories packaged with lurid covers and top talent offering up surprisingly progressive ideas about racism, society, militarism, the environment, and more, unless they were just scaring the bejesus out of you via classic frights found in Tales from the Crypt, for example, one of their big titles. It's a welcome return, uh, with the first one being called Epitaphs from the Abyss, number one, out in July, and the sci-fi tale Cruel Universe, number one, in August, led by a rotating series of top writers. I'm no expert from what I hear, though, and all my understanding is EC Comics really is one of the legendary imprints, and it's very exciting to see it back. What do you say, Jeff?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, you know, EC is like this fantastic, uh, uh, I guess, kind of a tone. Like, the tone would be somewhere between Roger Corman uh, films and uh, you know, just uh, the classic Marvel comics. You know, just the, the Art just on the page just jumps off the page. So those uh, EC comics, Any anytime EC is involved, it gets people's attention uh, because it's uh, kind of uh, lured and usually sublime at the same time.
1: (laughs) So it's good welcome news. Sperling, there is some bad news. We have a list of, when we're talking about bad news, what exactly are we talking about? There must have been some movies that worked. What's the bad news?
0: Well, let's, let's go down a list of movies that could have done better. For
1: instance, Black Adam with Dwayne Johnson. Ant-Man and the Wasp, and, but, Quantumania, no, Shazam, Fury of the Gods, The Flash, Blue Beetle, The Marvels, which is now the lowest grossing MCU film yet, and Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Is there anything to be said in defense of those movies? I don't want to go through them one by one. It would take too long and be too sad.
2: Wait, I didn't know those were all out. <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> those those have all been released, really? uh, including
0: uh, Madam Web, which is vying. I know, I guess it's not a part of the. It's a part of the Spider Verse, but yeah. it's not a part of the MCU. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, it would be vying for lowest ever. I think.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's right. yeah. Well, that, yeah, that's movies, MCU. Yeah. Some movies were released. That one escaped.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> is this just uh, a happenstance, or what's going on here? Is there just uh, the, none of these movies are particularly good? Or is there was, there's some argument to be made for maybe Blue Beetle or part of the Marvels or the Flash, um or is it just no? There really is superhero fatigue, and fans are tired of them, or are these just not particularly good.
2: Well, I think there's a, a there's a confluence of things going on. I think one is that um, if you look at Marvel Studios, which had uh, given us the most consistently entertaining and successful run of films potentially by anybody ever I mean you know Pixar you know uh, had a comparable kind of uh arc but not that many other, maybe Preston Sturges you know like uh <laughs> but uh the thing is is that it was a there's a finite amount of resources in that library. I mean, we often talk about Marvel universe. They say, you know, 9,000 characters, you know, over 80 years of comics. Um, yeah, but, you know, I had like 14,000 comic books and I can tell you after the first hundred characters, like there's a, a significant drop off, you know, there's, there's only <laughs> so many Thor's Iron Man's and Captain America's. And, uh, uh, the fact that, I mean, you know, Madam Webb, I mean, it's, it sounds interesting, but it's it doesn't have like the traction that you know the Hulk or um you know characters even even characters like uh, uh you know ant man he's got like a long publishing history at least um they have you know a lot more heritage and uh and tank uh their tank they got a lot more gas in the tank. The other thing too is that marvel um in addition to kind of getting past the a team uh and the b team um, they also have had a three hundred percent increase in the amount of content they're creating you know between uh two thousand eight and and uh twenty twenty one they had like twenty three movies um, they had ten in the, the next two years and then they had. Mm-hmm. You know all the TV um, shows, (laughs) the TV shows, and and you know it's suddenly they're they're working with different types of budgets, they're working with different types of directors, they're working in different medium, um, and all with different imperatives, and just expected to do it instantly and lose Downey. You know, uh, they just had a lot. And you're talking you're talking about Robert Downey Jr. The the exactly who you know was the first uh, Marvel superstar. Uh, and you know, uh, as Tony Stark kind of established the the tone that has made Marvel movies so fun um, and kept them from being ponderous uh, traditionally.
0: Uh, but Toby McGuire just texted me and said, first, really, no
1: <laughs> Marvel, <laughs> but, <leaders>. but let's <laughs> Into you, Well, yeah, right? that's just the movies made it's by Disney. It's <laughs> Catholic with a capital C." But let's, <laughs> let's, let's be clear here, a lot of these movies that we just mentioned were sequels or involved characters that had been done really well, so they had succeeded with Ant-Man multiple times. The first Aquaman was a big hit. Uh, Ms. Marvel was a billion dollar grocer and a huge success commercially and creatively. Shazam's first movie was a hit. And The Flash had been done really, really well on TV in multiple iterations. So none of these were guaranteed like, oh, it's a character no one's heard of, which was true for Iron Man as well. And yet they still dropped the ball. But as we point out, a lot of bad stuff happened. Stars died. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> others were embroiled in controversy. So that's kind of screwed up their plans. And what, right. when they were making all this content, they also had a worldwide plague, a writer's strike, an actor strike, and uh, that all combined to screw up everything as far as oversight and, and quality control. There were rewrites and reshoots and production delays. It was a nightmare for Marvel and DC. So we've got a new leader in charge of DC, uh, but they still had some older titles to dump. Uh, but like you say, the big problem really was they did too many I mean, there's nothing wrong with any one of these projects. There's nothing wrong with Black Adam starring Dwayne Johnson, at least on paper. But when you're making a bunch of stuff, is it a big problem, though, about the interconnectedness? That's what a lot of people mention all the time. Do you think that's overblown? Because it only amounted to like a little teaser at the end of a movie? Or do people really start to feel like, oh, my God, I don't know what's going on with this. I've lost the thread. You know, is that a bigger problem than uh, the studios recognize?
2: Well... Uh I think yes and no. I mean, the reason that um, to me, if you look at just uh, Marvel movies and d c movies like uh, as like Pepsi and Coke, like what what's really different about them? Um, one of the things that I've always thought is, um, in the d c movie there there's one character that matters more than anything else in the story, and the world revolves around them, like Bruce Wayne or Clark Kent. Um, but in Marvel universe, it doesn't feel that way to me. It feels like more, uh, kind of egalitarian, a little more chaotic. Like there's more things that matter. It, I mean, the difference is like, um, uh, Pulp Fiction, the characters in Pulp Fiction, they all live in the same universe, but you don't get the feeling like there's one character in that movie that the whole movie is going to protect and take you to a finish line. And it's not a John wick, you know, it's an
1: ensemble.
2: Um, yeah, exactly. And and that means that anybody could die. Or it means anybody it's like Game of Thrones. There's there's this 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 variable in the air, like nobody is bigger than the story. Superman's bigger than the story, but Spider-Man's not. Um, I think. And I think that- Well,
0: and, and if you look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Endgame, by the way, spoiler alert, cover your ears if you haven't seen those movies yet. It they've been out for five years. Come on, people. Uh Half the people died. Right. <laughs> I mean, then they Then they came back to life, but still, half the people died. Yeah, well, that just means you
2: get a new toy uh, later. That just means that <laughs> yeah. a new version of a toy. So that's really, you know, that's okay. But, uh, yeah, I just think that, that uh, like, in a Superman movie, you just know Superman's going to be the guy at the end. You know, like, there's no room for everybody else. But in Marvel, um, there's a little more volatility. The problem with that, though, is that... If you spread it too thin, then it's a mile wide and an inch deep. And, like, it's cool if people, like, go, oh, my God, is that Thanos at the end of the movie? And people are creating a hot buzz. But if they're saying, who the hell is Thanos? Like, they don't, it's (laughs) different. It's not tantalizing. It's not, like, here's another character that you've seen the shadow looming. It feels more watered down. And I think, also, before, we had an agreement with Marvel is that they made movies and we watched them now it's movies and tv shows and then if you don't watch the tv show and you got you know it's just when you're jumping from the cineplex to the living room um you know day and date then then it, it becomes a dicier prospect and uh and then there's also the fox stuff too you know inheriting uh sort of acquiring fox and how that changes everything the volatility of that too there's a uh, so much stuff in the air these days And the subversive superheroes, too, like with, you know, the most interesting superhero stuff being done probably The Boys, um, uh, you know, on on Amazon. And um, uh, you also have other things like, uh, you know, the Suicide Squad movies and Peacemaker that are sort of subversive. They're taking and Watchmen, uh, the series and before the after the film, of course, but they're taking the classic tropes, turning them on their head. Um, they're they're making fun of it while they're taking it up a notch. That's really hard to compete with, unless you are Hugh Jackman and, and uh, Ryan Reynolds. I mean, that movie's going to be massive. You know, I think that that's going to change the whole conversation because that's going to be like the Joker. Uh, it's going to be like Joker was for DC. It's going to be such a big movie that everybody's going to forget all the other stuff.
0: I think that that Deadpool. You're talking about Deadpool, whatever the next Dead, Deadpool, Deadpool movie is. Three, Deadpool, f- yeah,
2: together. Three, yeah. Uh,
0: I have this feeling that I don't want to call it Barbenheimer. It's not. It's not going to be team up with some other movie. Yeah. But you know, everybody is. Everybody in this industry is. You know. Woe is us. We have no movies. Woe is us. This is going to be a down year. Woe, the 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 movie business is dead. And then a movie like Deadpool is going to come along, and everybody's going to be like, "Yeah, it was fine all the time." I don't know what you guys were talking about. I think Deadpool, like you, I think it's going to be a massive hit. Yeah,
2: I think I think it really is. I think it's going to. Um, it's got some of that lightning in a bottle thing that Harley Quinn the characters had, you know, with uh, with Margot Robbie's work on that. But it also has this kind of. The supersize of just Ryan Reynolds uh, just being so likable and, and fun. And just a very gifted physical actor. I don't think he gets enough credit for like when he's in that costume, the amount of um, uh, attitude and uh, comedy that he can present without seeing his face is actually pretty, pretty great.
0: You know, a, a movie that I thought didn't get enough credit was The Flash. Yeah. Uh, I thought, you know, it was fu- it was a fine movie. I mean, maybe too much was going on because, you know, afterwards, if you asked me what it was about, I'd be like, I don't know. There was that funny moment and then there was that bit. And, you know, it's like, it was pretty good. I remember seeing that at CinemaCon and everybody came out going, oh, it was pretty good actually. Yeah, And and, and yet dies, completely dies upon release.
2: Yeah. I just think, you know, I, I think... Uh with Batman too, you know, like, it, there's a, I mean, you just think in recent years, you've, you know, you've had on, you can watch Titans uh, with one Batman, or you can watch Gotham with a different Batman, or you could watch the Christopher Nolan movies with yet another Batman, or the Ben Affleck Batman, or you can, or the Robert you know, Pattinson. You yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, and obviously building up to the Batman and like all these different iterations. And then in reintroducing Michael Keaton, who's already given us Birdman. And he's, you know, he's like, I'm Batman. Like, okay, yeah, we got it. So, like, but I thought he was Batman. But there's like, uh, it's just a lot
1: of, it's
0: a lot. Of- but, but really what you're saying, I hear all of that. And I just he- hear, I still have a shot at being Batman. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and that's good. To, it's good to remember the good times. You've already gone through how. That incredible run from Iron Man in 2008 to Avengers Endgame and Spider-Man Far From Home, Uh, 23 movies of remarkable quality and success. Uh, But go beyond them, with the exception of Eternals, the next seven movies were also commercial hits, right up to Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. So right up into the edge of the pandemic. Uh, They were still firing on all cylinders. And DC has had the Batman with Robert Pattinson. They've snagged James Gunn to oversee their franchise. And of course, one of the bright spots for Marvel was Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Um, and of course, Spider-Man sure. Across the Spider-Verse and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are both great animated hits that deserve all the accolades they get. Right. And even though there's been a ton of TV, there are some bright spots like What If and Loki and The Boys and its spin-off Gen V and My Adventures with Superman even. So like you say, there's been a really dark time here for the last two years, but there's been a lot of stuff. The strikes, the the pandemic, too many, too much product that they're just trying to shove out there and they're going to cue the comeback in about two minutes, right? You've got Deadpool 3, Deadpool and Wolverine. You've got the Joker musical, which is a crazy roll of the dice, but I love it. You've got reboots of Superman. You've got the Batman part two, Captain America and Thunderbolts are all coming up, aren't they? There's no reason to think in six minutes they're going to say, ah, people love superhero movies again.
2: Absolutely not. You know, and it's also, it's like, uh, if you don't like this summer's production of Romeo and Juliet or The Nutcracker, just wait till next year because it's seasonal. And that's that's what we're <laughs> at now is that these brands, you know, they're not just uh, existing for the sake of a great script. They ex- they exist because there's a lot of plastic to be sold at, at, at Target. And there's a lot of T-shirts to be sold at Target. And there's a lot of things at Walmart that have these faces on them and they need the constant commercial. People
1: need Halloween costumes. That's Mm -hmm. that's what we're talking about here. (laughs) Exactly. And like Robin Hood and Sherlock Holmes and Tarzan, there are stories that can be told again and again. It's not a cop-out. There's lots of Hamlets. Why shouldn't there be lots of Spider-Men, right? And of course, we've got a lot of interesting upcoming TV shows like X-Men 97 and The Penguin, a spinoff from the Batman movie, and Agatha, Darkhold Diaries, on and on and on. But one project that's making us think maybe, it's not just that they've got more movies coming out, so surely they'll work again, but uh, The Fantastic Four is a really important reboot. It's been done twice as a feature film, uh, basically, and it's never worked well. And now they've got a new version coming out, It looks like it's going to be set in the 1960s, at least partially. It stars Pedro Pascal as Reed Richards or Mr. Fantastic, Vanessa Kirby of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning as Sue Storm, Joseph Quinn of Stranger Things as Johnny Storm, the Human Torch, and Ibn Moss Bachrock of The Bear and Andor as Ben Grimm or The Thing. Uh, are we putting too much hope in this? Are we just reading the tea leaves? and Oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Are we just eternally optimistic or is there reason to think, yeah, this is really the beginning of a a turnaround creatively and, and they seem to be doing everything smart.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it absolutely is a pivot point. Like uh, I think it's a, it's a get everything right point. um, opportunity for marvel and i think also i would put it you know you mentioned james gunn and i think i think the movies that james gunn has done um have not only been successful but they they've had so much heart you know and and they communicate so well um and he he you know he, he's so conversant in the tone like the, the the boys has he's just got a great touch with the material um I think the the Fantastic Four and Superman, um, having those two kind of uh, linchpin kind of releases, I think it bodes really, really well for the superhero movie, because I think they're both a natural um, sort of uh, uh, striking, you know, the midnight hour start over kind of thing. Fantastic Four started the Marvel, Silver Age, uh, Kirby and Stan Lee introduced it in 1961, and 62, uh, and completely changed comics, you know, um, and made DC seem old-fashioned at the same time, you know, and then, I mean, obviously Superman was the first superhero, and, uh, um, and I think James Gunn, I think with him at the helm, that that'll have a chance to be really, really great.
0: Now, James Gunn, being the director of the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise, yeah. uh, left. He left uh, for, of course, DC, as we've covered uh, on this program before. I guess my question is: Is Eric Feig ever going to leave? Not that I'm saying he should. I'm just saying, you know, there has been some question about how far can Eric Feig go with this? Uh, can and can he turn it around? With,
2: uh, with Marvel?
0: Yes. With sorry, with Marvel. Yes, no, he, is, he I, is the head of Marvel. Kevin Feige.
2: So um, he, I think, absolutely. I think absolutely. I think the the problem is just the amount of content that they've had to produce uh, and, and the, the, you know, the crossover into uh, Disney Plus, um, just that that well has been tapped um, too much. You know, I think they've been strip mining it, quite honestly. And I, I think they lost quality control. You know, uh, if you look at just the number of releases, a 300 percent increase in productions, um, you know. Um, in the last three years. Yeah.
1: Well, The Hollow Reporter has a feature on how Marvel is retooling, but I read that feature and I don't really hear them learning any lessons. It doesn't really indicate any grand rethinking of anything. Maybe at most they say, well, the showrunners on TV shows should maybe have more control, but they don't seem to be rethinking all the interconnectedness of the movies and TV shows or that that may have run its course or they've done it too much. Basically, they just say, yeah, you know, we know what we're doing. We'll be fine. So if you could give them any tips or any pointers, what would it be if there is any lesson to learn? Or maybe they are just fine and, the, and everything would be okay. They don't need to change their modus operandi. But uh, like you, I think, and they have finally admitted, less is more for sure. That's certainly one thing they should learn.
2: Yeah. And, and you know, how can we miss you if you don't go? You know, like, so, like so take a break, guys. You know, every once in a while, like, give us a, like a, a little break just so we can kind of Gather ourselves, but I think also you know it, it's a generational thing. I think uh, you know you had the, the the cycle of the great success and and, and um, you know sort of Avengers and that graduating class uh, and you know and, and all the challenges that we've been talking about. Um, so I think that now they they've had a chance to reload. I think you know the the great advice is I, I would think for kevin uh, that anyone could give him would be um to remember what got him here i mean his understanding of who the x-men were uh, when he was working on richard donner's movie um and uh the Donner company's movie the first x-men movie and getting that experience when he was working with Raimi on spider-man understanding what to keep with those characters understanding that Uh, Wolverine doesn't have to be five foot three like he is in the comics, but he does need to have stupid hair. Like, you know, what's important? (laughs) You know, Um, uh, that kind of sensibility and that antenna um, will really serve him well now that he's getting the X-Men back, um, but now having control over them in a a totally different way and getting Fantastic Four. I mean, so here you have two of the crown jewels of the Marvel comics, right? The X-Men which is the most successful comic of the uh, late 70s, by far the best-selling comic of the 80s and 90s of any comic book, um, and then Fantastic Four, which is you know, the, the royal family of the Marvel comics story, the saga, um, you know, they're the first family. So um, he knows this stuff, this, he grew up with this, he lo- he's ready for this. this, this is his chance to do what he's, he did with the Avengers, is to take Marvel classics, put them on the screen, instead of taking a comic book and turn it into a movie, take a movie and turn it into a comic book. He knows how to do that.
0: You know, uh, the, and I've said this on this program before, but there's a, a, a video that right before Endgame was released, it was how to catch up on, on all the MCU 22 films in five minutes. And I watched it and I thought, you know what, if you watch this and you're an actor, and even like even a a working actor, one that you know whose name we would all recognize. And you watch this five minute video, and you don't see yourself in it. Yeah. You're calling your agent because yeah. it literally. I mean, between Paul Rudd yeah, and, yeah. and Natalie Portman, Anthony Hopkins, I could go on and on. Anthony Hopkins, oh, yeah. Paul. Yeah. I mean, Robert Redford was in. Like, you know,
2: like, just you know, kind of Everybody. Jeff Bridges. Yeah, yeah. People forget. You know, back back in Iron Man.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at that and you go, oh yeah, I should I should be uh,
2: (laughs) where's my age? You're not in Potter, Lord of the Rings, or Marvel. You're not in the Comic Con marketplace.
1: Oh, you're not British. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All villains, all villains are British. Yes, all villains always. Even the Nazis are British.
0: Well, well, Jeff, it's always a pleasure to, to hear what you have to say. You know, do you still cover music, by the way? Because I know you cover, yes, you cover superheroes. Yes, you cover you know, the comic books and comic book movies, but you also cover music. I mean, you, you know, I always found like he, you have the career that every entertainment journalist wants. You know, you're interviewing Bono, but then you've got to go off to a set visit to be on the next Marvel movie.
2: You know, it's, uh, yeah, you know, I haven't done as much music writing as I used to. I, I always loved it. You know, I never did reviews. I always did uh, profiles and trend pieces and covered award shows and things like that. Um, as my old boss Bob Hilburn reminded me often, um, "Pal, you have no judgment." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I always, I always liked always like to interviewing rock stars because unlike movie stars, uh, the best rock stars are themselves. You know, uh, you interview Ice Cube or Eminem. Neil Young, you know exactly who they are. You interview Robert De Niro or Kevin Spacey or Gene Hackman, and, and you really don't.
0: Yeah. You know, uh, uh, I remember at once at Sundance, uh, Neil Young had a movie there, and he, he said he had all I bet these it was bad. Pre- I, I, I don't know. Uh, he had all these uh, press interviews lined up, uh, and he just was like, oh, before noon, no. No, we're not. T- <laughs> like right in front of the press and everybody was like, okay, doesn't like to wake up before.
2: <laughs> <I> played, <laughs> it's I, just, I'm not doing. I played ping pong with him once <laughs> in, in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, nice. And he better had winner. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was, it was going along swimmingly until I made the mistake of saying, so Neil Woodstock, what do you think about that? And he just like, looked like <laughs> someone had like, Put a corkscrew in his back, and he said, "We thought we started a movement. We identified a marketplace." And puts the <laughs> ping pong paddle down and walks away. I'm like, "Too soon? Sorry, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 1969, dude. <laughs> Sorry."
0: <laughs> well, hopefully, we will have you on again long before. Uh, I guess what we're going on like over 50 years now, right? So, uh, yeah,
2: yeah.
0: So hopefully before 50 years has passed, we'll we'll have you on again. But thank you uh, for taking the time to speak with us.
2: Always. It's good seeing you guys.
1: Well, that was great of Jeff to join us. I know he's got some TV work coming up. As soon as we can promote it, we will. Uh, So that's exciting news for him in the future. And he and I first met each other at the Alligator, the independent Florida Alligator, the largest student-run newspaper in the country college newspaper. And uh, it's at the University of Florida. That's where we met and worked together on that paper. And they're having like a reunion um, celebrating decades of The Alligator. Uh, So I guess he and I maybe will join that virtually because we both have other commitments. But uh, it was cool to hear from him again and, and his thoughts about Marvel and DC and the superhero future.
0: Well, is The Alligator still being published I'm asking, for oh, yes. a bunch of, I'm asking for a bunch of journalists who used to work at newspapers and are wondering if they still have jobs.
1: Uh, they do at the Alligator, but you don't make a lot. <laughs> Back in the day, yeah. only like a handful of people made money actually working at the Alligator, uh, like a top editor and people like that. They, they, they get a little stipend, a little tiny amount per story, uh, but it wasn't enough to live on. It wasn't a, a, a paying job for most of the people who worked there. And it wasn't school credit either because it wasn't officially affiliated with the University of Florida. It had gone off campus when it wanted to report about abortion rights and abortion clinics, and the university pushed back. That's when the alligator famously went off campus uh, on that issue to have independence, and it continued ever since as a, as a thriving private enterprise. It's a business. So, uh, but it was well, great. It's where I, got, I learned my trade.
0: Well, and, uh, and you practice it still, and uh, there are some people who are not practicing anymore. And I don't, mean, I don't mean the Yankees, they're still practicing, there at spring training, but I'm talking about some people
1: who died over the last week. That's right. Actor Kenneth Mitchell died at 49 after battling with Lou Gehrig's disease. Is there a ranking of bad terminal illnesses? Because ALS would seemingly rank toward the top. He's known by Star Trek geeks because he played four different characters, including three Klingons, on Star Trek Discovery. Kenneth Mitchell also enjoyed other roles, including a brief bit in the movie The Marvels, but it was ALS that defined the last five years of his life and turned Mitchell into a trailblazer. Because he was already well-known and well-liked, most of his final roles featured him in a wheelchair, even when the role hadn't called for that. But one did. Star Trek Discovery crafted a role and a special effect. Uh, They didn't use special effects to show him walking. Instead, they created a wheelchair hovercraft just for him. So that was very cool of them. And it was cool to see him breaking down barriers and showing people in wheelchairs can be incorporated into TV shows and movies. Uh, All you need is the willpower to do it.
0: Yeah. Well, and uh, if you ever wanted, I'm trying to remember, I think it's Gleason, uh, Steve Gleason, the uh, football player. There was a, a documentary made about, uh, about him. Uh, mm-hmm. And he got the same disease, ALS, and he has been struggling and fighting with that ever since. And if you really want to know what that disease is like when it strikes you at that age, that is a, it's a very good movie to watch. Uh, well, well, it's a good movie to, to understand. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a heartbreaking movie.
1: Well, what's the name of the, of the film? I believe it's called Gleason. All right. Well, the Oscar-nominated special effects artist Matt Sweeney also died at the age of 75. His Oscar nomination was for the Ron Howard film Apollo 13, maybe Ron Howard's best movie. He also worked on other films like the Fast and Furious franchise and Lethal Weapon franchise, The Goonies, Galaxy Quest, The Lost Boys, Big Top Pee Wee, and Steven Spielberg's 1941, which I have never seen. But his no. most last, yeah, most lasting accomplishments are his inventions, all made in collaboration with others. Ultimately, he opened a special effects house to promote and sell them, including the Sweeney Gun, which simulated bullet hits, a mic rig for shooting car chases, and a mixture of liquid nitrogen and liquid oxygen that produced safe and breathable fog. So that's kind of cool. By the way, if you're wondering, Apollo 13 was nominated for Best Special Effects. It had a 50-50 chance of winning... Only one of the film was nominated, but it won. Babe, uh, which is are uh, you very serious? Good well, Babe is a great movie too. It's a, the pig talked for God's sakes. It was all oh, animals fine. talking. It was <laughs> no, the, what the Babe wasn't actually a talking pig, you know. And he, another uh, one of the many unsung artisans who make Hollywood hum is sculptor Ken Melton. He died at sixty eight. He specialized in sculpting clay maquettes. For animated movies, a maquette, historically, is a scale model of a larger sculpture. Maybe Michelangelo made or had made a maquette of his Statue of David as a guide to the much larger one he would finish. In animation, maquettes became key to the new digital world of animation. Melton worked on TV and other areas before being hired by Disney. His first job was sculpting a maquette for the film Aladdin. He created a tiger head that would move and talk in the cave of wonder that Aladdin stumbled into. And that was the first computer animated character in a feature length film. They took the sculpture he made, scanned it, and used that as the basis for all the computer animation of that character to come. He went on to do work on a lot of Disney films after that, like The Lion King to Tarzan, The Incredibles. He also worked for other studios and then moved to Laika, where he was key to its growth in stop motion animation, like their masterpiece. Coraline. So, you know, you don't hear a lot about maquettes or people making sculptures so they can scan them and then use them in movies like Toy Story. But that's one of the many ways that they do that. So that's very cool. And finally, Indian radio legend Amin Sayani dies at 91. Hello, sisters and brothers. This is your friend Amin Sayani talking. That's how the legendary DJ of India began many of his broadcasts. He had a lifelong fascination with radio and the music of Indian films. He was first heard on the air at the age of seven. But Sayani got his first radio show in 1952, not in India, but in what is now known as Sri Lanka. It began on Radio Ceylon, one of the oldest radio stations in the world, and it was launched the very year that the state-owned broadcaster of India stopped playing music from Hindi films. India had gained its independence, and the government thought the music was maybe too westernized. Of course, people loved the music in, in Indian films, and his show became hugely popular. It continued for the next forty-two years, and seemingly, our podcast will continue for the next forty-two years, won't it, Sperling? That is true, but not next week. Okay. okay. Oh what? Oh my God! I forgot to ask. <laughs> oh, <laughs> son of a. <laughs> Oh, damn it. (laughs) you should have said so at the top of the show. (laughs) What's happening? Where are you going?
0: I am going to a conference. Uh, The UK Cinema Association is having their annual conference, which I will be attending. Where? Uh, In London, England.
1: Oh, well, as everyone knows, there's no Wi-Fi in London, England.
0: No, but uh, it, it, it takes place on the same day that we record and then two days later. So, you know, by... It's impossible. Yes, it's. Uh, but you know what? It's not impossible to do. What to subscribe to us in iTunes, Google Podcast. I don't know what they call the Google Podcast Store anymore. I know that Microsoft Marketplace, uh, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free, you can usually find us, and you can rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so. Now you can find that information as well as links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, ways to uh, follow. Jeff Boucher. And I'd like to thank him for joining us again. Uh, And uh, all those ways to contact us. All of this information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. And if you would like to contact us, you can do so dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. And we are also on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can find us. Uh, again, showbizsandbox.com is where you can find all of that information. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. Their new album is out, Loss of Life. It's good. I've find, listened to it. It's good. Yeah, and you can, you can find them at whoismgmt.com. Michael Gilt is a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This
1: week it's Oscar Pool. Because when we come back, it will be that we will record the day after the Academy Awards, which are March 10th. So next Sunday is March 3rd. The following Sunday is March 10th. So before he leaves, Sperling will remember to reach out to Ann Thompson of Thompson on Hollywood and say, hey, can you come on the show? Yes,
0: I was going to. She's over at IndieWire, Ann Thompson. I will definitely be reaching out to her. It has become an annual tradition. I don't even know how long. I mean, it's been umpteen years. Uh, So I will definitely reach out to her and see if she is available. But, uh, you know, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage on that particular website, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his coverage of the entertainment industry is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week or two weeks from now, play nice.